Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to understand it clearly now as we continue into 1 Thessalonians. Amen. Cool. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm going to invite Patty up now to speak to us on that passage. Uh, thanks, Jack. Warm welcome to you if uh, this is your first public meeting or you're just visiting. Uh, it'd be very helpful if you've got a copy of the text of uh, 1 Thessalonians open in front of you. And uh, once again, I'm going to have a few slides for us for the week. Um, uh, can I just sort of reiterate my um, sort of encouragement to continue to be praying for festival? Hopefully uh, in your uh, small groups you receive a booklet about festival earlier on in the semester. You may have sort of seen some stuff happening on social media. Um, so for the next two weeks the EU is committing to try and uh, work more intentionally to be evangelising our non-Christian friends. There'll be about... 35 to 40 EUers, all little groups of EUers who are organising a whole lot of uh, sort of what we're calling grassroots evangelistic opportunities, so you can be pray- prayerful for those. Uh, and our public meetings will continue Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday next week and the week after that. Uh, Moose is going to be speaking on uh, the topic of what are you longing for. Great opportunity if you've been praying for a non-Christian friend to consider inviting them to come along to the public meetings next week. Well, we're going to try and get through the last two chapters of uh, 1 Thessalonians today, chapters 4 and chapter 5. Uh, so you might just like to correct the outline there. And uh, I don't know about you, uh, sometimes I watch pretty trashy television. Uh, it's just sort of nice at the end of a week or at the end of a day just to sort of sit and turn on the mindless television. Uh, Channel 73 on my TV uh, often has a lot of mindless television on it, actually. Uh, one of the shows that I quite enjoyed watching was a show called Doomsday Preppers. Anyone watch Doomsday Preppers? Yeah, a couple of show of hands. I noticed my children didn't put up their hand. That's an interesting observation. Uh <laughs> It's a, basically a show about a group of Americans. I'm not being prerogative, uh, pejorative here. It's just that they're filming Americans. And they try and film these people who are so persuaded that the world is about to end cataclysmically and apocalyptically that all social structures will break down. So they need to become completely sort of self-supportive. Uh, there's one uh, particular episode where they sort of get three or four of these preppers and they give them all a mark out of 100 as to how long they think they would survive based on their preparation, i.e. how big is the bunker that you've dug underground and how much stuff have you filled it with? Uh, one guy really hadn't thought about how he was going to get a lot of fresh water. Obvious thing, you'd think. He scored fairly low on the score out of 100. He really wasn't pleased when they interviewed him after this. And I was a little nervous that maybe he was going to go back down to his bunker and take out a whole lot of his guns that he'd stored across one wall and do some damage with them. Anyway, he didn't. That was good. Um, there was another show where they um, followed the progress of one particular family. It happened to be an older bloke. Um, and uh, four of his children, I think it was four of his children, three of them looked like they were um, female models. They looked like they looked like, so they barely wore clothes all the time. And uh, they were trying to rebuild this castle to make it into this bastion of civilization for the next era. 
basically, if you took a photo of the castle at the beginning of the series and at the end, they'd done absolutely no work on it. Uh, they'd spent a lot of time arguing and chopping down trees and hauling rocks and things like this. It's a bit of a just completely escapist, crazy television. Okay? But the thing that struck me was they were so persuaded about a particular outcome, they thought the world was going to end cataclysmically, they knew they were unprepared for that, and so they had committed a heck of a lot of time, a heck of a lot of their financial resources, and a lot of their emotional energy persuading others and working towards that particular end. So they had a particular vision for what they thought the future would be like, and they also had a particular vision for what they would want the future to be like. And I want to suggest that as we read through 1 Thessalonians, we see a similar thing. So the question again, which we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, is what is your vision for the future? Is it consistent with what we see here in the letter to this church at Thessalonica? Uh, What uh, follows in uh, chapter 4 and 5 is consistent with Paul's theological framework up uh, up until this point in his letter. And Paul's motive here for his instruction is that three particular things. Firstly, he says, and you notice there in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, that you would please God. Paul's motive for writing is that the early church would live a life that is pleasing to God. But at the same time, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul is driven by the insistence, well, and in some senses more than that, the endorsement that he is an apostle approved and entrusted with the gospel. So we should expect nothing less that when Paul speaks... He speaks with that conviction and that motive and he speaks with the authority that comes from God the Father. Thirdly, it's also interesting to note that Paul's motive, both there in in chapter 4 verses 1 to 2, is also that the Thessalonians have already begun to live in a particular way. They've already got a vision forming for their life and Paul wants to exhort them to continue to do so. So Paul arranges his ideas in chapters 4 and 5 and this is how I think he does it. Uh, What you'll notice in chapters 4 and 5, if you sort of carefully read through the text, and again, some of you have been doing this in senior Bible study groups, is he's got a particular section in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, which talks about Christian living. The two broad ways in which he unpacks this is around holiness, with regard to sexual purity, and then brotherly love. Chapters 4, verses 13 to 18, is uh, particularly about the return of Jesus. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, is about this thing called the day of the Lord. And chapter 5, verse 12 to the end, again, he talks about Christian living, Once again, I think, with a bit of an emphasis on brotherly love and then holiness. Notice the mirroring, in some senses, between what's going on in chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and chapter 5, verses 12 to 28, and the strong similarity, or mirroring, if you like, between what's going on in the last part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5. There's a couple of reasons why Paul writes in this particular fashion, why he orders his thinking about this. And part of it was to do with the way in which, in the particular context when he was writing, that much of his letter would have been received and spoken. It would have, you would have needed to have received it orally rather than in written form. See, we have the great privilege of actually, for all of us, having multiple copies or multiple translations of the text sitting in front of us. And so wherever we're not sure about something, we just go back and look it up. The same privilege would not have been extended to the early churches. The letter would have been received and spoken. And as a device to enable people to remember what was going on and also to highlight key points... Repetition was important. So Paul clearly has in his mind two big ideas. How is it that you live well in the light of the return of Jesus? And so he says to his audience on no less than two occasions, how is it that you live well? First section, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Reminder, chapter 5, verses 12 following. What will it look like, the return of Jesus? Well, he articulates it in this sort of central point and that gives it prominence and he does it in two different aspects so you might remember it. 
So let's look at each of the sections in turn. I'm going to start with the centrepiece because I think that's the thing that actually drives us how we live well. That's the thing that actually creates the foundation for our vision. So the last days. Uh, this is the section from 4.13 down to 5.11. What is it that Paul... Why is it that Paul writes about this? Well, firstly, we'll lay them. Paul is keen here to teach this early Thessalonian church about what happens to those whom he says, quote, sleep in death. Secondly, I think for some in the local Thessalonian community, grief had resulted, probably because there was a misunderstanding that death separates you from your current community. Thirdly, for many, and this is probably true at least of the pagans in the city of Thessalonica, if you sort of read about some of the sort of the current culture of the day when Paul was writing, for many in that particular city, they really thought that all there was to life was this life in the here and now. There was a lot of concern and uncertainty as to how you prepared your relatives well for whatever would come after, that is, the afterlife. Uh, there was actually one, one account that I was reading was there were a number of uh, sort of voluntary associations that you could actually join. This is like a couple of thousand years ago. And you went and they had meetings about how you actually prepared your loved ones well for the afterlife. They gave you advice about what you did in the preparation of the body. Uh, you see many of the inscriptions that archaeologists have recorded for us always sometimes talk about the futility of the current life also with a hope that there might be something up. So the current culture into which these new believers are trying to live and frame their vision for not only their own life but the afterlife comes in this particular situation that presumably there wasn't much. Uh, Notice what Paul says in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, Paul, he writes to counter that assumption. There are those who grieve who do not have hope. Whereas Paul says, no, no, actually for the believer, for the follower of Jesus... They, they have a, a sure and certain hope about what happens when you die. And Paul is writing to remind them of this. So in Paul's teaching on the last days, he talks about what will take place and then when will it come. So let's look at what will take place. Verse 14 following, chapter 4. We see here that because Jesus is alive, the same thing will actually happen to those who are his followers. God will bring to himself through Jesus all those who belong to him. For those who have died physically, they will not miss out on this wonderful moment. No, actually in this case, they will be the ones who first and foremost will be raised first. Now Paul uses this this sort of analogy or this metaphor of sleep in verse 13, notice it there, verse 14 and verse 15. If you're reading um, in the ESV, the translators have decided to translate this word asleep. It's actually, when you sort of try and look at the way in which Paul's using the language of sleep in chapter 4, it's different in chapter 5, just giving you a heads up. What Paul is using is the word that actually is the language for putting someone to sleep. Okay? What Paul is using this word for is to describe those who are dead physically. But they're still not separated from the Lord. They are still, in some senses, very much part of the believing community. So much so that as a Christian tradition, up until recently, it was observed that many churches actually tried to bury the bones of believers who had died physically, either in the walls of their churches, in the floor of their churches, or in the immediate surrounds of the church buildings. You may think that's a little bit morbid, a little bit creepy. 
I mean, good tourist attraction when you visit the big cathedrals overseas. No, no, the reason why they do it was driven theologically. It's because there's this genuine, tangible reminder that when you walk into church on a Sunday, the bodies of those who are your brothers and sisters, yet have died physically, but are still asleep in the Lord, are actually physically present with you. They're not alive like we are, but they're still actually physically present and it ought to act as a reminder for us every time we walk past them. These are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. They still are. And they too will be raised once again to life. And that's the hope that I too have. Here's a little exercise. Next time you drive past a cemetery, if you've got time, just stop. Take 10 or 15 minutes, longer if you can, and just go for a walk. Just walk through the cemetery. Don't do it in the middle of the night. <laughs> Particularly if one of your friends was in the car and they sort of disappeared because you know they're going to jump out from behind a tombstone at any point. Great youth group game, by the way. Oh, you're probably not allowed to play this anymore because um, of all the risk assessments. Seriously, there was a cemetery down at Jeringo, uh, Jeroa. Anyone been to Jeroa? The cemetery right out on the headland? Yeah, we used to go down to youth group and what we'd do one night is we'd say, we're just going to go for a walk. And so we'd sort of walk the, lead, the, the uh, kids out into the cemetery and the leaders would all just go and hide. <laughs> just for a couple of minutes. And then we'd jump out and scare them. It was great. Can't do that anymore. Risk assessment, so you probably can't do it. Okay, we might just edit that out of the talk as well, seeing as this is being recorded. Um, no, no, actually, very seriously, though, actually, next time you drive past the cemetery or if you know there's one on the way to one of your journeys if you're going on holidays, just stop 10 or 15 minutes and go for a walk. The reason why I suggest this is, once again, it will remind you of your frailty. It will remind you that in your human nature we are actually much more frail than we think we are. Life is short and fleeting. We are but a breath as we know elsewhere in Scripture. And I think as you walk through the graves, for some of them it will be of a great encouragement to you as you see what is written on the headstones. And for others, it will give you a great feeling of sadness when you see what's written there. Because it sometimes is very tangible, those who died with hope and those who died without hope. And brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Jesus, may that be a great encouragement to you and hopefully you will be reminded of these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, an author who wrote a book called The Art of Dying, uh, I commend it to you if you get a chance to read it, says this. Now, this is Noel, The Art of Dying, from a couple of years ago. He says, The Christian art of dying is not a denial of the awfulness of death. In fact, Christians recognise, as Paul did, that death is the last enemy. The Christian death is an embodiment of a belief in a God who has defeated death and will give life to our mortal bodies. See, Christians ought to die differently from the rest of the world. We ought to be known for the way in which we die. Yes, we still grieve. Paul is not disputing that. Notice what he says there in the beginning of chapter 4. But we ought to be people who grieve with hope, not those who grieve without hope. And so, brothers and sisters, if you've lost someone recently and have been grieving or are still currently grieving, please hear this great word of hope. Yes, grieve, and the grieving process takes time, but grieve with hope. See, Paul reminds us here that the dead in Christ will rise first at that time when the Lord returns from heaven in verse 16. And it will be a time there which everyone will be aware of. Notice the language that's used there. The image of the shout, the voice of the messenger of God, the trumpet of God. Will there be an actual sort of trumpet noise? Well, I'm, I'm quite open to there being, yes, there will be, because that would be consistent with the way in which the noise of the trumpet is actually talked about in the Old Testament, particularly in the Exodus narrative where the trumpet, the trumpet was sounded before the Lord appeared to people. 
Or is it really Paul using the metaphor of saying, actually, there will be such an announcement about the return of the Lord that you will definitely know that this is the return of the Lord and you will not miss out on it? Uh, One of my children, who I'm very thankful understood this particular part of the Bible, uh, was asleep one morning and uh, he told me this story some months after it happened. He was asleep one morning and he heard a trumpet and he genuinely thought the Lord was coming back again. (laughs) Now, you laugh, but he takes his theology very seriously. So what did he do? He jumped out of bed and he stood next to his bed and he stood there ready. Notice how his theology informs his practice. He thought, if this is the day of the Lord, I'm ready. I've got nothing to fear. This is the Lord. I'm, the Lord's about to come. You know, he stood there for a bit. The trumpet get going. Nothing happened. I think then he realised it was someone practising the trumpet. <laughs> and so he got back into bed. So will there be an actual trumpet noise? I'd be quite open to that. But it may be Paul using a metaphor of a trumpet. I'm not exactly sure on that one. However, what we do know is, let's not miss the point. The point here is that there will be such an announcement on this day when the Lord appears, that priority will be given to those who have died first and they will be raised first. And then those who are still alive will also be raised with them. But it's also worth remembering that the cry of command is not just a figurative cry of command. I think this is the cry of command because it's the word from the Lord that actually raises the dead. Notice what we remember from John 5. This is Jesus speaking, John 5.25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." See, it's the word of the Lord, the word of Jesus, who on this last day when he returns, his cry of command, that word, raises the dead. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is just restricting his argument to those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. From John 5, we know, will raise all the dead, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. But those who are not asleep in the Lord, we won't have missed out. We too will be caught up. And together we will be in the clouds. Notice verse 17. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The word of encouragement, we will always be with the Lord. Whether or not we're presently here on earth, you're with the Lord if you're a believer. The Spirit dwells within you. You have a relationship with God right now. On that last day, you will be with the Lord. But let's unpack verse 17 a little bit. It's a little bit tricky, I think, to try and understand. We will all be together in the clouds. Here's a couple of suggestions as to what this might be. It might be that the cloud, in the same way that when, you, when an aeroplane flies behind the cloud, it's hidden from view temporarily. Is that what Paul's talking about? We're sort of now hidden in the Lord somehow. Maybe. Uh, in the Old Testament, when you sort of look at the way in which clouds are used, particularly in the book of Exodus, it's when the glory of the Lord is more physically present. The cloud descends on the tabernacle over the, sort of the seat of mercy. In Daniel 7, you see one like a son of man who comes before the Ancient of Days with the clouds. So it might be another reference to the physical, tangible appearing of God. That's maybe why Paul's talking about the language of clouds. But also it's talking about a great day of judgment. So in Zephaniah 1, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
Ezekiel 30. For the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. The language of judgment in the Old Testament actually involves darkness and clouds. So is this the reference that Paul's talking to? Or is he actually just catching all of these things together? Uh, The other thing that's worth thinking about in terms of the meeting of the Lord may also be a reference which was not uncommon in the first century that if you sort of lived in a city or a town or something like that and the ruler of the city had gone on a journey, as they were returning, you'd be looking for their return. And when the king was some distance off, you would generally all go out to meet the king, pay them some form of tribute and then you would walk with them where? Back into their city. Is this what Paul's referring to? Notice actually we should be waiting for the day of the Lord. And so when we see the Lord returning, we're caught up with him in the air. That's the going out to meet him because he's coming. Which then, if that's the illustration that Paul's using, is where do we go then? Well, presumably, to extend the metaphor, we then return to the earth, do we not? To live with Jesus as our king in the new earth for all eternity. That may be worth pondering. Is that what Paul's talking about? Paul's hope here is that upon sort of being reminded or informed about what would take place, and that's why he's writing to the Thessalonians, but he's also writing to us today as his hearers that we would be encouraged. I've rarely up until recently used this particular passage as a word of encouragement to people. Yet isn't that what Paul says? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friend, if you lack hope, if you grieve without hope, if you are uncertain about where the Christian life is going, read these words. Be encouraged by them. Share them with your friends. Encourage them with these words. So when will this take place? We've seen what will take place. When will it take place? Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, well, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul says that when will this Lord's return come? Well, it will mention it comes as being connected to the day of the Lord. Uh, this sort of notion of the day of the Lord language, so we've done, we're halfway through, when will it take place? Okay. Uh, the day of the Lord language first appears in Amos chapter 5 in the Old Testament and is then picked up by other latter prophets speaking about the return of God, God returning to the nation of Israel. Sort of broadly, theologically, the day of the Lord is an inevitable appearing of God, brought about because of covenant breaking among his people, but also a desire for God to bring about justice and righteousness, not only among his own people, but actually also judgment on the rest of the nations. Sometimes and often the appearance of the Lord involves sort of some warlike warrior figure, and God is often portrayed as this one. He comes leading a mighty army. He comes to defeat his enemies, to rescue his people. That's the image of the day of the Lord. It is inescapable once God has decreed that he will appear. It's a day of internal scrutiny for the house of Israel and for all those who are believers. It is a day, it is a day of disaster and death for the enemies of God's people. This is the background that Paul has in mind when he speaks about the day of the Lord in verse 2. So how is it described in its timing? Well, you need to get your English hats back on again because Paul uses one simile and two metaphors. You remember your similes from school and your metaphors? Well, let's go. In verses, one, in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 5, Paul indicates the day of the Lord will be like, that's the key word for similes, will be like a thief in the night. 
This doesn't mean that when Jesus comes, he nicks all your stuff. No, no, that's not simile. Simile is it will be like a thief in the night. It's not Jesus coming to steal all your stuff, but no, it will actually come as a surprise. It will come when you least expect it. Just that if you knew that someone was going to rob your house between 1 and 2 on Thursday, you would either have made sure that one of your siblings or parents were home or the police would be there, or you wouldn't have turned up to public meetings. Well, okay, you would have at least made sure your insurance was paid up, okay? Although that's a prior event, so prior knowledge of an event, so they might not have covered it. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Similar to the parable in Matthew chapter 24, actually, that Jesus tells about the thief coming in the night. Now, just in case you misunderstood the simile in verses 2 and 4, Paul sort of moves the simile into a metaphor in verse 3 to talk about labour pains coming upon a woman. That the day of the Lord will be certain and sure. When women get pregnant, at some point in the future, generally within about the next 40 weeks, they will encounter labour pains. The baby doesn't just stay in there for years. It actually comes out. So Paul uses this metaphor of birth. Sometimes labour pains come suddenly and unexpectedly. Not uncommon for women to sort of turn up to hospital going, I've still got another three weeks to go. What's going on? Uh, Actually, you're giving birth because you've been carrying the child for about the last 35 weeks. Well, such is the destruction that awaits those who are unprepared. Paul then sort of riffs, if you like, on this sort of simile and metaphor in verses 4 and 5 on the idea of coming at night to remind his hearers that as believers they are of the day and not of the night. That is, they are to live in the light and not in the darkness. Notice what he's done. He's taken a particular simile of the day of the Lord. The thief often comes at night, the labour pains of the woman. But then he says, just as the day of the Lord is coming, so are believers to be people of the day, not the night. Now, the implication here from Paul is, we are to be ready and waiting for the return of Jesus. And also, actually, how you live really matters. So Paul here in verses 6 and 7 encourages his hearers not to sleep, but to be awake. Now, the way in which Paul is using sleep in chapter 5 is a little bit different to the way in which he used it in chapter 4. I think what he's talking to here is, in some senses, Paul's metaphoric indication that those who are asleep in chapter 5 have experienced spiritual death. In chapter 4, it's talking about physical death. You're asleep in the Lord because you've died physically. But in chapter 5, that you are asleep or that you sleep is that you're in darkness. Which I think in why in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, we are to be people of the day, not people of the darkness. We're motivated by faith, hope and love. The very thing that Paul starts his epistle with in chapter 1, verse 3. Why are we motivated by these things? Well, because Paul has chosen us not for wrath, but for salvation. Uh, Verse 10 in chapter 4 there, uh, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Some would say that Paul sort of mixed his metaphors a little bit between the asleep in chapter 4 and don't be asleep in chapter 5. I think the key thing here is, let's not miss the point that Paul's making. If you've died in the Lord and you're physically dead, you're asleep. Now, I think probably what that means is that once you die, the next experience you have of the Lord will be the great day where you see him face to face, actually. Not unlike sometimes when you go to sleep at night and maybe eight to ten hours pass and you wake up again and you go, I have no conscious memory of those last eight to ten hours. 
So what do we do with this particular section about the last days? Well, here's the question. Do you grieve for the lost ones? Is your grieving without hope? In which case, friends, be encouraged. Don't grieve without hope. Are you prepared for the return of Jesus? Do you feel the urgency of his return? What is the manner of your lifestyle this very day for the rest of this week? Are you living as people who live in hope? Are you living in darkness or genuinely seeking to live in the light? Which is where Paul goes next, which is how is it that we live rightly in these last days? So here in the last sort of five or six minutes, we're going to try and unpack the first part of chapter four and the last part of chapter five. Uh, notice here Paul talks about two key ideas, holiness and brotherly love. Chapter 4, verse 3 to 8, I think, uh, gives the answer to arguably one of the most perplexing questions that Christians ask. I'm sure you will have asked this question, and if you haven't, uni's the place to ask it. And the question is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? Is this not a question that you ponder? Well, friends, the answer is somewhat surprisingly simple, and it's there in the passage. Did you see it as you read through it? What does he say in chapter 4, verse 3? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, at its heart, that particular word means to make holy. God's will for each of our lives is that we are to be made holy. When the Bible speaks of this idea of sanctification, it often refers to both an outward cleansing and an inward cleansing. In the Old Testament, you see the outward cleansing is often those particular things that were cleansed during ceremonial rituals. Sometimes it was people. They had to sort of wash, the priests had to be washed before they could perform their priestly duty. Sometimes they washed items like the tabernacle or the altar so that it was genuinely set apart for good use. In the New Testament though, when Jesus arrives, we see actually the idea of sanctification is an inward one. The sacrifices of the Old Testament, while they may have made people outwardly clean, will not clean the inward guilt that was still being carried, which was why we needed an inward cleansing and the death and resurrection and our trust in that death and resurrection on our behalf is the means by which, friends, our guilt for sin is taken away. God declares us to be righteous before him. He declares us to be holy. It involves the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And we saw this, didn't we, in chapter 1 about conversion. The Holy Spirit comes in power to work that people might now be declared righteous and then continue to live in that holy life. Paul here gives us one key example of being sanctified, the idea of sexuality. He doesn't go into specifics. We don't know if he's addressing a particular problem that the Thessalonian church was having. But I think here we see in this very real key life issue, we start to see what sanctification looks like. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. Sanctification is is a developing practice of demonstrating control over the body. Do you struggle with self-control in in any area of life? Friends, seek to be sanctified. Work hard at it with the help of the Holy Spirit, the reminder from the Word of God and the encouragement of God's people to grow in your self-control. Notice that this control is shown by a manner of lifestyle that is holy, as in it's set apart from the way in which others round about you are living. In this case, I take it, that's the worldly, those who live with the worldly passions. And in doing so, this manner of lifestyle is honourable. It is pleasing to God. That you act differently to the non-Christians round about you, brothers and sisters, is a thing that pleases God. See, God has standards, verse 7. He expects people to live by them. 
He expects people to live pure and holy lives and in our unnatural, unforgiven state, this is not possible. Which is why the world behaves in a way that it does. But friends, thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it is now actually possible in a developing, ongoing sense for us to live more closely to God's standards. Notice also in verse 5 that when people don't live in accordance with this manner, we see that at its heart this behaviour flows from a lack of right understanding about who God is. If you'd like to grow in your sanctification, the encouragement is not just work harder, work harder, work harder. No, actually, keep refining a right understanding of who God is, what he's done for you in the Lord Jesus and how he works in you. As a consequence, we see there in verse 6, God will punish those who have continued to live in a manner which is unholy, which is apart from the way God God wants people to live. Uh, Notice also in verse 6, worth pointing out here, the implications for our lifestyle are that they affect others. Sure, they affect us, but also they affect others. And so Paul gives a warning here in verse 6 that the consequence of living like the pagans means that you will wrong your brother and sister. It could be because you lead them into sin as you go to sin, or it may just be that, as Paul writes elsewhere, that as a body, when one part is harmed, that has implications for the whole body. Well, why is it that we struggle with this? I think this is a genuine struggle for most Christians. I think it's partly because in this disobedient body, there is something about our current physical, tangible bodies made in the image of God, yet still scarred and marked by sin, which means we will not be able to live perfectly before the Lord, partly because of this physical body. The antidote is not to shorten our life. No, friends, the antidote is perseverance and look for the resurrection of the body. See, notice what happens in the resurrection. You don't just get these bodies, we get brand new bodies, no longer marked out and scarred by sin. The means by which we actually can live perfectly in relationship with one another and with God in a physical sense for all eternity. I think the other reason why we struggle with this is because the culture in which we live generally It's just anti-Christian. People just don't like God. They don't care that he's there and some of them say they will hate God. I think the current culture creates a yes, yes mentality and sanctified habit of actually saying no. And we don't like doing it. Our culture finds it offensive when you say no to something. Friends, Christian sanctification is the saying no to temptation and sin and saying yes to the way of God. This will be a continual struggle. But friends, actually it is possible for you to persevere and through the help of God, through his spirit and his word and the encouragement of his people, to keep saying no to sin. So work at it. Set yourself good patterns for all of life and develop them now. Uh, Verse 8 here gives us a sobering reminder. A sobering reminder that if we're tempted towards sexual immorality, then we live outside the, the, the goodwill of God. Uh, you see it also in the last part of chapter 5 where Paul gives various commands about the pattern of behaviour that is to be expected in whatever circumstances you find yourself. Secondly and finally, brotherly love, you see the first section in chapter 4 verses 9 to 12. It gives Paul great joy to write this because the Thessalonians are already demonstrating brotherly love and Paul says, continue to do this. 
They've demonstrated their other person-centeredness in their love for God's family. So Paul's encouragement is, do this more and more. And his, his encouragement is also that they be ambitious. But not that they be ambitious for fame or fortune, wealth or prestige, or to be known among men. No, actually, that they are to be ambitious in leading a quiet life, characterised by minding your own business, meeting your own needs, and continuing to demonstrate brotherly love and living in holiness. Why is this? Because, friends, at the heart of living this type of life is an other person-centeredness. I think the similar idea is picked up again in chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. So how do we conclude these sort of three weeks on 1 Thessalonians? I want to conclude with this vision for life. I think the gospel message, I know the gospel message, is powerful through the Holy Spirit. We are called to God to serve him from idols. Such is the power of the word of the gospel when proclaimed rightly and the work of the Holy Spirit. That confirms God's choosing of us, his great love for us as his children, saving us from the wrath that is to come. Paul, our apostle, the one to the Gentiles, commands us, as he is an entrusted messenger of God, to not grieve in the light of death. No, actually, but to have hope. For death has been defeated. We will rise on that great day of Jesus' return. We will receive new bodies. And so now we wait. But we don't wait passively. No, we wait actively. We live in holiness, brotherly love, loving one another. And as we have been taught, so we will continue. May this shape, motivate and drive all of our passions and desires in our life, this day, this week and for as many years as the Lord gives us until we fall asleep in death or the Lord returns. Jack's going to come pray for us. Dear God, we're frail beings. Life is only a breath. But those who know you have eternal hope, for you have breathed life into us who are dead. May we be continually encouraged by this. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. Help us not to live in darkness, but to live in the light, having faith, hope and joy in your return. Help us to develop patterns that help us live our life according to your will, with the help you've given us through your word, spirit and brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.